Well, good morning, Trinity Church. Happy Easter. It is good to see you here this morning. Hey, would you take just a moment and thank our worship team, our choir, and those who helped set this up this morning? <clears throat> so my name is Doug, and I get the privilege of being the interim lead pastor here. And uh, I am just really excited to be here with you today. So uh, if you're a sports fan, you have had some pretty great events recently to enjoy and celebrate together. You know, we had the Super Bowl back in February, and of course, March Madness with the San Diego Aztecs getting all the way to the end, failing in the end, but hey, they made it. So my brother uh, attended uh, San Diego State, and so I was constantly getting selfies from him. Look where I am, you know, and he's there at the game, so it was a pretty exciting thing for him. Uh, but you know, in looking back over the recent months, uh, and sports history, something unheard of happened um, within the last couple of months, and I want to talk about it a little bit this morning because it has a hint of heaven to it. So it happened during uh, the Super Bowl, and uh, depending on whether you're an Eagles fan or Kansas City or, you know, I'm kind of uh, adopted into the Kansas City fan because we have family in Kansas. Uh, my team didn't even get close, so we won't even talk about them, but anyway... Um, it happened in the last couple of minutes of the Super Bowl, and you'll remember that the Super Bowl was tied 35-35, uh, and this unheard of thing really wasn't the fact of the Chiefs' comeback surprise win. Uh, it also wasn't the fact that Andy Reid, their 61-year-old coach, finally won a Super Bowl, and you know he's always been known as the best head coach who had never won an NFL championship or a Super Bowl, and, and it wasn't the fact that Mahomes is the youngest quarterback in the NFL to win Super Bowl MVP status at the age of 24. I mean, that seems unheard of in itself, but it was something else. It was in these last two minutes of the game, and uh, you remember Kansas City was inside the red zone, and they were getting poised to score, and the ball was snapped, and, and Mahomes handed it off to uh, Jarek McKinnon, and he skirts around the left side of the line, and, uh, and he sees an opening, and he's, he bolts for the end zone, right? And uh, you can tell that people are trying to catch him, and, and he's, he's almost there. He's one yard away, and what does he do? He drops a knee on the one-yard line. And I don't know about you folks, but I was sitting in my living room yelling at him, What are you doing? You know? This is a Super Bowl. This is your chance to have the glory of scoring a touchdown in the Super Bowl. And, and I'm sure that you were doing the same, because I could hear you in my living room doing the same thing. Like, What are you doing? What was he doing? He was carrying out a play his team had rehearsed again and again and again every Friday leading up to the Super Bowl. This exact play was in their mind to gain time so they could win the game. And they called the play church mode. Church mode? What kind of name is that for an NFL play? Church mode. But what they decided to do was they decided they were going to sacrifice the personal greatness of one player, Jarek McKinnon, for the greater good of the whole team. And that's what happened. When his knee went down, the clock began to wind off, and you know the rest of the story. They kicked their field goal, won 38 to 35. No time for the Eagles to come back. Church mode. Give up the fame of one player for the future of the team so they could all win. It was this carefully crafted player. Uh, play And from a statistician's point of view, this was a huge blunder. It was a missed opportunity, right, for Jarek 
to have scored a Super Bowl touchdown, but from the bench point of view, this was his greatest moment. In fact, sports analysts are calling that one play Jarek's greatest day on the job. Isn't that interesting? His greatest day on the job. And today, I want to talk to you about Jesus' greatest day on the job. This was the day uh, when Jesus went into church mode, when he decided to sacrifice the well-being of one for the good of all when he went to the cross. It was on April 5th, 33 AD. We can go back. We know the exact day that he died on the cross, was resurrected three days later. And by resurrecting from the dead... He gave the church victory over mankind's greatest enemies, the three greatest enemies of death, sin, and Satan. And so we call his greatest day on the job Easter Sunday, but his disciples called it unbelievable, shocking, unanticipated. It was unbelievable because no one had ever come back from the dead on their own. Nobody had ever done that. It was shocking because of the nature of the death that he died. It was brutally thorough. And there was just no sense at all that, that this guy would come back from the dead. And it was unanticipated because their vision of the future kingdom died with Jesus on the cross. Who would ever think that this guy would come back from the dead? So today I want to take time to look at two things that I think make Jesus' resurrection, the cross and the resurrection, his greatest day on the job. So if you have your Bibles this morning, I hope you do. Would you open to Matthew 27? And we're going to take a look at Matthew's point of view. Now, Morgan read for us Matthew 28. We're going to back it up just a bit to the 27th chapter. And we're going to start at verse 45 because Easter was Jesus' best day on the job because he opened the way to God for all. He opened the pathway to God for all. Look at verse 45 of Matthew 27. Now, it says on Good Friday at noon, there was darkness over all the land until 3 p.m., and about then, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, oh, this man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge and filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and, and gave it up to him to drink. But the other said, well, hold on, wait, let's see whether Elijah will come and save him. And Jesus cried again with a loud voice, it is finished, and he yielded up his spirit. Now, I want you to notice the next couple of verses, because I think embedded in them is the greatness of his day, of this weekend that we call Easter weekend. Notice it says, behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook, the rocks were split, the tombs also were opened. And many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. And when the centurions and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe, and they said, as they should have, truly, this was the Son of God. These Roman crucifixion soldiers who did this all the time, that was their job. Imagine having that as your job description, crucify people. They had seen them all. They had seen all kinds of crucifixions, but never one like this one. This was completely different. And I want you to notice a few of these details. First of all, darkness descended on the land. So this is for three hours, from noon to three, right? And they were very quiet hours. 
We know that from Scripture there are seven things that Jesus said during his crucifixion. And sometimes if you do the stations of the cross, you go to the seven stations of the cross where you look at each of these statements. But during this period of time, there was silence. He didn't utter any of them. And the crowd watched in grim silence, too terrified to speak. It's interesting the Bible does not say the sun was blacked out. It wasn't an eclipse. This was a direct act of God that went from sudden light to sudden darkness. The Bible always associates darkness with sin and evil. In fact, it says that we as Christians, right, have been transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light when we experience salvation through Jesus Christ. So we have this sudden darkness that is going throughout the land, and theologians tell us that it was during these three hours that your sins and mine were paid for by the perfect Lamb of God. And it's almost as though God creates this, this cape of darkness around the cross to hide the agony of Jesus paying for your sins and mine. So no one could observe that, but God himself was pouring out his wrath on the sins that we have committed so that we could be redeemed by Jesus Christ. I love how Paul describes this in 2 Corinthians 5. He says, For God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Listen to those words. God made Jesus who had no sin to be sin for us. So I want you to pause for just a moment and think uh, about all the wrong things we've done in the past, you and I together. Uh, so these are the things uh, we wish we could have a do-over for them, right? I wish I could go back and change this. These are the things that we regret and, and we would take back if we could. They're the things we try to forget and, and we can't. And they're the things we try to cover up by good deeds, but we find that's really insufficient. It doesn't actually expunge those sins. And so we have to live with them. But all of these wrongdoings, all of these acts of evil or sins, all of these things we intended or didn't intend are things that Jesus took on himself during those three hours. He took responsibility for them. He accepted the blame for them. He suffered the righteous judgment from heaven for them. And as you think about it, he became sin for us. He became the liar. He became the adulterer. He became the murderer. He became the child molester. He became the greedy, corrupt politician. He became the gangbanger, the pornographer, the bigot, the womanizer, the thief. Whatever sin you want to name, he became that. Our sin was placed on his account. And that is why he cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The disruption of their eternal relationship. So he sacrificed his greatness as the perfect son of God for our well-being as humanity, church mode, mic drop. And I think as the darkness filtered away and the sunlight was replacing it on this cross-lit skyline, Jesus shouts out this phrase from Psalm 22. If you haven't read Psalm 22 lately, you should. Because what he is crying out is the first line from Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the rest of the psalm predicts and describes the crucifixion of Jesus. Listen to some of these phrases from Psalm 22. All who see me mock me. They say he trusts in the Lord, let him deliver him. 
Dogs encompass me, and a company of evildoers encircle me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. They divide my garments among them. All of that in Psalm 22. And then you get to the end of Psalm 22, verse 30, and it applies to us. Verse 30 says, It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, that he has done it. Folks, we are that generation yet unborn. When that was written, when Jesus proclaimed it, you and I had not yet been born. And yet we are proclaiming today, it is finished. Jesus paid for our sins. Listen to Isaiah 53. He says, surely he, Jesus, took up our infirmities. He carried our sorrows. Yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him, afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed, right? We are all like sheep that have gone astray, each of us to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he didn't open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shearers is silent. So he did not open his mouth. And in response, this crucifixion crew looked at him and said, truly, he was the Son of God. This guy was different. But notice, too, as God opens the way for all of us, he does so by bearing our sins, but he also does so by separating the distance between us and him. Notice the next phrase in our passage in Matthew 27. The curtain of the temple, the Jewish temple, was torn in two. Now, let me ask you this morning, why would God do that? Isn't it sufficient that his atonement was made on the cross and he was resurrected. Isn't that enough to pay for our sins? Would you agree? Is anything else needed? Nothing else is needed. So why would God tear the temple curtain in half from top to bottom? Why is that recorded for us that it happened? Well, he's illustrating what is going on on the cross. Josephus, the first century historian, writes that this temple was, or this uh, curtain was four inches thick, 30 feet long, and 60 feet high. But it's torn from top to bottom. Can I get a couple of guy volunteers up here for just a second? Any of you guys brave enough? All right, one, two, here we go. Front row, I love it, come on up. I brought with me a curtain this morning, it's a shower curtain. See, there's the top, okay. This is from our grandson's bathroom at home. All right, hold it up nice and high, guys. So if you were uh, a priest, you would have been familiar with the temple and the temple curtain. Now, on your side of it is where all the sacrifices happen throughout the year, throughout every day, right? So if you sinned as a Jewish person and you wanted to be connected back to God, what would you do? You would get an unblemished lamb You would bring it, it would be sacrificed, the blood of that lamb would be covered to pay for your sin. One lamb, one sin. I would have needed a big flock, right? And maybe you would have too. One lamb, one sin. But behind this curtain was the Holy of Holies, where the Ark of the Covenant was, and God's presence dwelt there. And only one time a year did a priest, the high priest, go behind that curtain with the blood of a sacrificial lamb to put it on the Ark of the Covenant to pay for the sins of the nation all together. And this day was called the Day of Atonement. 
So what separated you as a sinful person and me as a sinful person on a regular basis was this curtain. We could not go beyond the curtain to God. But on the day of Jesus' death, what does he do? He rips it, not from the bottom up as though it could be done by a man, but from the top down. 60 feet of ripping fabric, four inches thick. And it opens up the holy place of God. Guys, thank you so much. You can just put it right down back there. Thank you. Would you give them a round of applause? They didn't know they were coming to church to come on the platform this morning. What was God saying? He was saying, you are welcome in my presence. Come on in. You don't have to go through a priest anymore. You don't have to go through the sacrificial system anymore. You don't have to go through the temple anymore. You are welcome in my presence because of what Jesus did on the cross. This beautiful picture, isn't it, of how God has this invitation to us to come and be with him. Peter writes about this, and he says, when they hurled their insults at him, he didn't retaliate. When, they, when he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. Why? So that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. You and I were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. At the same moment, there is this earthquake that rocks Golgotha, in the city of Jerusalem. And God is making a statement here. In fact, it's interesting, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, NOAA, records that earthquake in 33 AD on their website. And next to it, they have a note. It was at a crucifixion. Historical moment. This earthquake is happening. What is God doing with this? What well, says that the tombs, of un, uh, the tombs of believers, dead believers in God, cracked open. And they were raised to life. And then after the resurrection, they're going into Jerusalem and saying hi to people. Can you imagine, if you had been there, there's this earthquake, you're picking stuff up off the ground, you're putting it away, and there's a knock at the door. You go to the door, and it's, Aunt Abigail! She died eight months ago. You were at her memorial service. You gave the eulogy about her great chocolate chip cookies, how she loved national parks, and what a great lady she was. And there she is! What do you say? Yeah, you might say, hi. <laughs> It'd be, uh, I don't understand, right? It's so amazing. God doesn't tell us why this happened. He tells us how. Excuse me, he tells us what. What was going on? This is just the beginning of new life. Just the beginning. As these dead people precede Jesus into Jerusalem and announce resurrection life, resurrection power as Jesus is resurrected from the dead himself. Now, it's interesting to understand this. We kind of have to go back to a little bit uh, before in time to Mary and Martha. You remember Lazarus, the story of Lazarus being raised? Well, when he was sick, they called for Jesus. And he purposely delays day after day after day until he knows Lazarus is dead. And then he goes to visit Mary and Martha. And these two dear women, friends of his, who were putting him up on a regular basis in their home and feeding him and just loving him, 
Martha comes to Jesus and she said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Now, listen to Mary's response, or Martha's response. She says, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. I know that's coming, this moment of, of reunion with all the saints of God. But Jesus says to her, no, no, Mary, Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. It's not just a day, it's a person. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he dies, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die eternally. Do you believe this? Amen. Do we believe that? That was the challenge to Martha. And she says, yes, Lord, I believe that you're the Christ, the Son of God who is coming into the world. And the resurrection of Aunt Abigail and all these other people was an exclamation point on that that morning. Paul in Romans 6 puts it this way in the message translation. Could it be any clearer? Our old way of life was nailed to the cross with Christ. A decisive end to that sin-miserable life. No longer captive to sin's demands. What we believe is this. If we get included in Christ's sin-conquering death, we also get included in his life-saving resurrection. We know that when Jesus was raised from the dead, it was a signal of the end of death as the end. Never again will death have the last word. He says, when Jesus died, he took sin down with him, but alive he brings God down to us. From now on, think of it this way. Sin speaks a dead language that means nothing to you. God speaks your mother tongue, and you hang on every word. You're dead to sin. You're alive to God. That's what Jesus did. That means you must not give sin a vote in the way you conduct your lives. Don't give it the time of day. Don't even run little errands that are connected with the old way of life. Throw yourselves wholeheartedly and full-time. Remember, you've been raised from the dead into God's way of doing things. Sin can't tell you how to live. After all, you're not living under that old tyranny any longer. You're living in the freedom of God. So symbolically, all of these things are occurring to say to you and I, the path to God is open. You don't have to go through people anymore or religion anymore or any of the typical things that we do traditionally to come to God. You, you can come into his presence freely and in doing so, celebrate the second reason that this is Jesus' best day on the job and that is his resurrection gives us new life that Paul just talked about. Listen to Peter in 1 Peter 1. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ in his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope. New birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. So new birth, living hope, eternal inheritance are those things that belong to us as Christians. Last week, we had up on the screen the picture of Josh and Katie Lee's new baby, new baby boy. And boy, did we celebrate. We clapped and applauded new life. New hope is also something incredibly important for us. Con consider some of the ways that we feel about this. You get to Friday, and uh, the weekend is ahead of you, and what do you feel? New hope, right? I got the weekend, and hopefully you do. 
when you get that tax return from the IRS, right? Right on. New hope for putting that to a better use. You discover the noise under the hood is nothing more than an old radiator belt, and it's not that major engine repair you thought you were going to have. Thank God, new hope for less downtime and less money spent. God offers you and I hope, living hope at the resurrection, and that is great news. So let me tell you a true story as we wrap this up that talks about the impact that grace makes in our lives. And it's so important when we think about the resurrection, we leave here today knowing that we have a new birth within through Jesus Christ. It's so important that we know we have a new hope for now and for the future, and that comes to us by the mercy and grace of Jesus Christ. Listen to this story. Denise Benderman was a student at uh, Hannibal LaGrange College, and she had a final exam coming up, so she left work early to get to the classroom to do her last-minute studying, and she arrives there, and all the other students are already in their seats, and they're cramming away for this test. They had a very uh, challenging uh, professor named Dr. Tom Huffy. And Dr. Huffy comes into the classroom, and he's got a stack of the final exams, and uh, he sees all of them studying, and he says, hey, we're going to do a review before we do the test. And everybody kind of breathes a sigh of, oh, good. We're going to kind of go through this and, and have an idea of where we're going. So as he's doing the review, a lot of it was from the study guide, but there's parts of it that, that Denise didn't recognize at all. And so in questioning him, he said, well... All of these questions come from the book, even the footnotes. You're responsible for them. You ever had a professor like that? You need to know the footnotes. Oh, you're kidding. I didn't remember that. I didn't think that. So she's starting to panic. He says, listen, here's the test. He puts it down on every desk. Do not turn it over until I tell you to, and then you can start the test together. So finally, it's time to take the test. And he, uh, he says, turn your test over. And as they did, they found something unheard of. What they discovered was their name was at the top of every test, their own test, but also every single answer was already answered correctly. Unheard of. At the bottom of the last page of the test, on every exam was this handwritten message. This is the end of the exam. All the answers on your test are correct. You will receive an A-plus on the final exam. How would you feel? Right? Oh, wow. That's fantastic. He says, the reason you passed the test is because the creator of the test took it for you. All the work you did in preparation for this test did not help you get the A+. Instead, you have just experienced grace. Hope. Then he went around the room to every desk, to every student. He said, so um, what's your grade on the exam? A+. So uh, did you deserve the grade you're getting? Nope. Not in my case, nope, would not have deserved it. So how much of the studying for your exam helped you achieve this final grade? Uh, none of it. All the studying I did, it, it didn't apply at all. And he concluded with these words, and I want us to hear them well this morning as we think about Easter. He said, some things you learn from lectures, some things you learn from research, but some things you can only learn from experience. You have just experienced grace. 100 years from now, when you stand before God, if you have entrusted yourself to Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, your name will be written down in his book, and you will have had nothing to do with writing it there. You'll be welcomed into heaven, and that will be the ultimate grace experience. He paid the price to write your name there. Folks, that's Easter. That's what we celebrated Easter. This was his best day on the job because, number one, he opened the way to God for all of us. 
you're welcome to come through Jesus Christ. And secondly, he gives us this new life and a living hope through his grace. And the only question left for us is, have you accepted it yet? It is required that we accept it. I don't know if I've shared my personal testimony with you. When I was five, I accepted that gift. And my pastor, who loved object lessons, stood at his pulpit and held out a $20 bill. Have I told you this story? Okay, if I have, bear with me. (laughs) And he said, if anybody wants it, come and get it. Pastors are known for rhetorical statements. It's like, I'm not moving. He's going to put that back in his wallet and go on. But he insisted, no, if you want the 20 bucks, come and get it. Now, I was a five-year-old sitting right back there on the aisle. My family took the entire aisle. And I turned to my dad and said, can I get it? He goes, sure. So I got out, and I started walking forward, and then I heard the thunderous herd behind me, you know. (laughs) And I sprinted to the front, and I took that money. And I'm thinking to myself, new baseball glove, new, you know, this or that. And then he went on to say to the congregation, when did that money belong to Doug? Uh, when he took it. That's right. Wasn't his there or there or there. It was when he was right here and took it. And the thing about Easter, the thing about resurrection life, new hope, new birth, is that you must take it. It can't be something you just think about. Oh, I've always known God. It can't be something, oh, I've always gone to church. I was raised in a Christian family. No, it's a personal decision that brings us behind the curtain. And Jesus invites you to have that today. And by the way, it doesn't cost you a penny. Doesn't cost a cent. It was paid for by Jesus. He bore your sins and mine. And he just wants you to know this morning, I love you. You're important to me. I want you to experience this new transformation, this new life. And Easter is a great time to take it. So if you haven't yet, please consider it this morning. And if you have, that's the reason we're here to celebrate. Let's pray together. Oh, Lord Jesus, we are so thankful for the work you've done for us. We praise you for your death on the cross, all the sins and wrongs and imperfections you absorbed from us, all of our past misdeeds taken by you, paid for by you. And we rejoice that when you came back from the dead, you affirmed to us that you have conquered death. You did pay for our sins. You liberated us from death, sin, and Satan. Thank you for exchanging the law for grace and for letting us experience that in a new way of life. And Father, I just pray for anyone here this morning who's still weighing in on on whether or not it's time to get rid of their burdens, to relieve themselves of their sins, to enter the freedoms you provide. God, please encourage them in their hunger to have something more from you, to come to you for your banquet table and eat freely of the grace and freedom you provide. Father, help them ask for your cleansing and your mercy and release them today from their past sins into the beauty and freshness of your living hope. Father, we pray that in the wonderful, risen name of Jesus Christ. Amen.